0: So, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And what is the name of the sermon series? Mark 7. Enter the Life of Christ. Enter the Life of Christ, Part 7. Thank you, Bob. Part 7. So, this is the seventh installment of our series, Enter the Life of Christ. We've been saying all along that the sermon series name has two meanings that as we study closely the Gospel of Mark together, we enter into Jesus' context, we follow his life and ministry. In a sense, we are intellectually entering the life of Christ. But our prayer as we go along is that it would not just be an intellectual exercise. That as we come to know and understand Jesus, that we would receive His love and grace all the more. And spiritually speaking, we would enter the life of Christ. So this is the seventh installment. And before we begin, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it's perfect. That speaks not just to our minds, but to our very souls. I pray as we open your word today and seek to understand it, that you would bless us. That we wouldn't leave here just knowing more things, but we would leave here knowing you more, Lord. We'd be transformed more into your image, and we'd leave here more fully the people we're meant to be, and more able to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So I want to open with a question. should be a fairly easy one. Who does God love? Everyone. To whom does God offer forgiveness and salvation? Everyone. Good, you passed that test. That's, that's Those are good ones to know. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? God forgives, offers forgiveness to everyone so long as they confess their sins and confess Jesus as Lord, they can be forgiven and receive His salvation. But I wonder, are there any asterisks that we consciously or subconsciously put on that everyone? I wonder, as that everyone applies to other people, do we think God loves and forgives everyone, but not people who have done truly horrible things. God loves and forgives everyone, but not people who commit those sins that we would measure worse than others. God loves and forgives everyone, but not the people who have legitimately hurt us and done wrong toward us or someone that we love. Or perhaps, as it applies to ourselves, I wonder if we think we can't receive Jesus' forgiveness because maybe we've done something that's truly bad. Maybe we've committed that sin that we vowed to ourselves we would never do. I might not be a perfect person, but at least I won't do that one thing. And then you end up doing it. Maybe we think we can't receive Jesus' forgiveness because we have legitimately done wrong and hurt ourselves or people that we love. We're getting real today. And what we'll see as we travel through the Scripture is that there is no asterisk. And that is the good news, that the price for every single sin was paid in full on the cross. And that Jesus' love and forgiveness does indeed apply to everyone in all of those situations. And that brings us to our first blank there in your sermon insert. The forgiveness of Christ is real and it is radical. It is real and it is radical. And this is where we jump into our scripture for today. So verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, which was the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd came to him, and he was teaching as was his custom. And he walked along and saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So he sees Levi, sitting, who who is a tax collector in Capernaum, sitting on his booth. Tax collector's booths were raised platforms. So the tax collector would sit up high. to serve two purposes. So the tax collector could sit up there and pick people out of the crowd who needed to pay their taxes. So they'd go, Hey Stan! You haven't paid your taxes. I can see you. Don't think you're getting by. Right? Conversely, so that people could didn't have an excuse. You know, I'm sorry Levi, I couldn't find you. I'm at the highest point in town. Of course you can find me. I'm in my booth. You always know it. there's no excuse to pay the tax. Right? Now, tax collectors in Jewish culture were just about the worst thing you could be. Because, you see, the nation of Israel at this point in history was ruled over by the Roman Empire. And they were being horribly oppressed by the Roman Empire. And the tax collectors were actually employed by the Romans. And what the tax collectors would do would be to impose the Roman tax on their fellow citizens. And so the the Jewish people saw this as such a disgrace that if you were to become a tax collector, you were actually excommunicated from the synagogue. You were kicked out. To put it in our context, if you were a tax collector and you showed up to church today, if we were in Jewish culture back then, we would say, You can't come in. What you've done is too horrible. You are not a part of the people of God. Get out. It was despicable to be a tax collector in those days. And the tax collectors could find themselves in a weird sort of limbo because they were employed by the Romans, but they were still Jewish. The Romans thought they were less than them, and so they didn't really want to be the tax collector's friend. And the tax collector's synagogue and family considered them to have disgraced them and to have disgraced God, and so they didn't want anything to do with them. And so tax collectors were kind of isolated people the one thing they had going for them was that they were exceedingly wealthy because they made commissions off their taxes and then the Romans also let them take a little more than they were supposed to and keep it for themselves. So in summary, Levi was rich. He was infamous. People knew who he was and not for good reasons. He was corrupt. He was utterly despised. And he was arguably, by those societal standards the worst sinner in all of Capernaum. So to put it in our context just think of of whatever sin or horrible atrocity somebody could commit or do or be whatever you would hold worst in your mind that's Levi. That's how he was viewed. And that's your second blank. Levi was arguably by a societal standard at that time the worst sinner in all of Capernaum. Fun fact though, Levi is also known as Matthew. And yes, I do mean the author that got, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. His life is about to change radically with Jesus' intervention. So Jesus walks up to the worst sinner in the city and says, Follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, why might he have done that? Why would he follow this new religious leader, leaving his very lucrative, albeit kind of alienating, career behind him? As I read and researched, there's kind of two reasons that feed into each other a little bit. The first possibility is that, as Jesus said, follow me, that the words were actually healing to Levi. We see all throughout the scriptures that when Jesus comes to people with physical afflictions, he just says, be healed. And they're healed. So it's conceivable that in this instance, Jesus walked up to Levi and said, follow me. And spiritually, he was healed. His eyes were opened and he could see and understand the truth of God. He saw who Jesus was. And so he followed. Another possibility, again linked to this one, is that Levi wanted out. All the money had lost its appeal. The only friends and people that would associate with him were pretty despicable people themselves. He didn't have friends or family to really hold close. He just wanted a place to call home. And Jesus was the first person to invite him into a new group. Invite him into a new way of life. Have mercy on him. So that's our next blank there. That Jesus' command to Levi to follow him was actually a sign of mercy. Levi was given a great privilege of being invited in to be one of Jesus' disciples. But he probably deserved it least of all. This is sheer grace, sheer mercy. Levi is very excited about this, by the way. You can see he is very excited about this. Verse fifteen. Um, after that, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many sinners and tax collectors were eating with him and his disciples. For many people, who, there were many people who followed him. So Levi is in the group. He's like, "All right, guys, I'm in the group now. Where are we eating supper?" And you know, they didn't have a place to stay. Remember, at one point, when people want to follow Jesus, Jesus says, "Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head." So they, they were just kind of go from town to town having people take them in, and you could see them kind of looking at each other like, oh, we haven't figured that one out yet. And he was like, come to my place. I'll have all my friends come over. They can meet you, Jesus. This will be great. And so he's excited about it, and his excitement overwhelms any possible shame or embarrassment he would have. Because think about it. Inviting all, who were his friends? Those people. His friends were those people. His house was was that house that house at the end of the block. You don't go there. We all know what happens there. We all know who hangs out there. You don't go there. And yet he invites the religious, the new, hot, cool religious leader of the day to come to his place and have dinner with his friends. He risked offending two different people, two groups of people. First, he risked offending his friends... Because they're like, Levi, we came over for dinner, and you have the new pastor over? Like, come on. It's a buzzkill. I could do better things on my Friday night than have dinner with the pastor. I mean, think about the people least likely to want to have dinner with the new rabbi. These people. Then he also risked offending Jesus. Because what if Jesus walked in and said, you know, Levi, your badness is just about all I can take. We can't have all these people in here. I mean, this this is just going a little overboard. But Levi didn't care. He was so overwhelmed with the goodness of Jesus and the love and forgiveness he had experienced. He just invited everyone in. A possible embarrassment to himself or possibly offending other people. I wonder, would you do that? Would I? Is the good news of Jesus so real, so fresh, and just so bubbling out of us that we are willing to invite people to come to know him even at possible personal expense? See, Jesus took a risk here too. He risked his reputation. That's our next blank there. Blank number four. Jesus risked his reputation for the sake of the worst sinners in town. He went to that house. He's hanging out with those people. And you can see the Pharisees questioning this. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? You can almost hear the disdain in their voice, kind of looking down their nose over their reading glasses. What's he doing? Doesn't he know if he wants his ministry to take off, he should avoid those people? You see, the Pharisees believe that you... In order to be pure and righteous before God, they needed to keep a distance from people who were unclean, that you could get kind of impure by osmosis, that Jesus would just get dirty just simply by being around those sort of people. And another thing about the culture of that time, today if you share a meal with somebody, it's sort of a sign of friendship, a sign of respect to a degree, but back then it was even more so. It was exponentially more. If you were to sit down and have a meal with somebody, it's a sign of friendship. It would be a sign of, I respect you. I honor you. And so when, when they're seeing Jesus, they're like, Jesus is eating with those people? What is he doing? Doesn't he know who they are? Doesn't he know what they've done? How could he do that? It's going to totally ruin his ministry. How impure. How gross. But Jesus has an answer for them. So Jesus kind of overhears, or one of his disciples says, Hey, the Pharisees are here, and, and and this is what they're asking. And Jesus, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Sometimes things are a little bit lost in translation from the original language. Jesus isn't saying that there are some people who literally are good enough that they don't need a Savior. This is actually a tongue-in-cheek comment. Sometimes Jesus gets a little sarcastic, maybe just a smidge snarky. He never sinned, but sometimes he just gives a little dagger. And what he's saying is that you don't realize that you're sick. Spiritually speaking, you don't realize that you need a doctor. Spiritually speaking, you don't realize you need a savior. And just as a doctor won't treat a patient who doesn't realize they're sick and come to the doctor for healing, so too Jesus is saying, I can't, I'm not going to forgive sin if you're not going to confess it and recognize your need for me. It was the self-righteous pride of the Pharisees that kept them from receiving the love and forgiveness of Jesus. See, Jesus is willing to forgive everyone. He paid the price for everyone's sin on the cross, but in order for us to receive his forgiveness, we have to admit our need for it. And the Pharisees wouldn't do that they'd pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, they'd crossed every T, dotted every I, and they were spiritually perfect. Jesus is saying, not so. You're sick, you just don't know it yet. So that leads us to blank number five. The Pharisees' self-righteous spirit hindered their ability to receive Jesus' love and forgiveness. So in summary, we see that Jesus offers forgiveness and fellowship to everyone. Even those people. Even the people that we would count to be the worst sinners among us. Levi was despicable and corrupt. He would have been scorned in our churches today. If I was at that party, if I was at that dinner party and somebody found out if I'd been in that house... Somebody probably would have been calling the district superintendent saying, just so you know, Pastor John was at that house. We know what happens down there. I don't know if he's gone off the deep end or what, but I'm not sure what he was doing at that house. And we see a really similar thing. That's why we had the reading from Acts with the Apostle Paul. Because Paul was a religious zealot who despised Christianity to the point that he was rounding up Christians and having them killed, tortured, and thrown in prison. And yet, as he's on his way to Damascus with a search warrant to round up every Christian he can find in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem and have them put on trial and killed, Jesus appears to him, confronts him, and transforms him into arguably the greatest missionary of all time. And Paul would end up writing most of the books in the New Testament. Think about the transformation that Jesus brings to the person that we would count as the worst. The worst. The worst. So in application, we see that in our own lives, Jesus forgives without an asterisk. He forgives the truly bad things we have done. He forgives the those things that we said we'd never do, the sins that we count worse than others. He forgives those. He forgives the ways we have legitimately done wrong. Or hurt people that we care about. Let the good news of that just wash over you. I don't know all of your past, and I don't need you to, to know that there are regrets in each one of our lives. There are things we wish we hadn't done, or words we wish we hadn't said, or things that we wish we had done, or words we wish we had said, and when we're laying down to sleep at night or in the silence of a long car ride, it kind of comes to the surface. We go, geez, man. Why'd I do that? Why didn't I do that? There is forgiveness for that. You don't have to hide it from God. He can heal that in you. He can forgive that part of you. You can come fully before Him. Because before Jesus, we're fully known. And loved by him. You don't have to hide a single part of yourself. He knows. And chooses to love and forgive you anyway. But the second part of this is perhaps more challenging. You see, forgiven people are called to be forgiving people. We are forgiven by Jesus purely out of his grace and mercy and not because of any merit of our own. And so then what are we called to extend to people in our lives? That same forgiveness. This is hard. This is really hard. We are called to forgive people who have done horrible things. We are called to forgive people who have committed the sins that we would measure as worse than others. We are called to forgive people who have legitimately wronged us. And don't By rights, they don't deserve forgiveness. But neither do we. And yet Jesus still chooses to love and forgive us, and so we are called to extend that forgiveness to others. There are many reasons why forgiveness, this radical forgiveness, is crucial, but I'm going to share four four with us quickly. First, unforgiveness is one of the worst things that we can carry Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, it's damaging. And this isn't just from the Bible. This is from, like, psychology. This is universally recognized. One of the most damaging things to you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, is to carry around unforgiveness. As I was preparing for the sermon, I was listening to another pastor's sermon talk on forgiveness, and he said, Bitterness is the poison you drink, hoping the other person will die. Bitterness is the poison you drink, hoping the other person will die. You sit there and think, man, I hope they get theirs. I'll never forgive them for what they did. They don't deserve it. But then what happens to us? Holding on to all that anger and that tension, it actually has physical effects on us. It wears us down. We're designed to forgive, not hold on to bitterness. So it's actually for our good. It's freeing for us to forgive. Second, being forgiven is one of the best feelings and things a person can receive. If you've ever done wrong and been legitimately forgiven, you know what that feels like. It's just so freeing. And it's a great blessing to pass on to somebody else. Third, forgiveness brings unity out of division, which is crucial for familial and societal health. Imagine what our families, imagine what our communities, imagine what our nation would look like if we could extend this kind of costly forgiveness to each other. How much more united would we be? How much more loving would our communities be? Fourth, it glorifies God and serves as a reminder to the world of His forgiveness of sins. So when you extend forgiveness to somebody and they're not expecting it because they know they don't deserve it, they say, what What got into you? How how could you possibly forgive me? Jesus forgave me when I didn't deserve it. He showed me grace and mercy when I deserved punishment. As his disciple, I'm called to share that same love with people in my life, so I'm extending it to you. It's a reminder of Jesus' love for all of us. In closing, I want to share a very challenging but powerful um, account from a newspaper um, which drives this point home practically. It's about a shooting um, in an Amish community in 2006. You might have seen it on the news Following the tragic Amish school shooting of 10 young schoolgirls in a one-room Amish school in October 2006, reporters from throughout the world invaded Lancaster County, Pennsylvania to cover the story. However, in the hours and days following the shooting, a different and unexpected story developed. In the midst of their grief over their shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. They didn't hold a press conference with attorneys at their sides. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness toward the killer, Charles Roberts. That same day, Amish neighbors visited the Roberts family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. Later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed, and Amish mourners outnumbered the non-Amish at Charles Roberts' funeral. It's ironic that the killer was tormented for nine years by the premature death of his young daughter. He never forgave God for her death. Yet after he cold-bloodedly shot ten innocent Amish schoolgirls, the Amish almost immediately forgave him and showed compassion toward his family. In a world at war and in a society that often points fingers and blames others, this reaction was unheard of. Many reporters and interested followers of the story asked, how could they forgive such a terrible, unprovoked act of violence against innocent lives? The answer is that the Amish culture closely follows the teachings of Jesus, who taught his followers to forgive one another, to place the needs of others before themselves, and to rest in the knowledge that God is still in control and can bring good out of any situation. Love and compassion toward others is to be life's theme. Vengeance and revenge is to be left to God. I don't know what I would have done if that was one of those Amish, in fact, I'm pretty sure I would not have responded the way they did. But it doesn't mean that biblically it's not the right thing to do. It's radical forgiveness. As Jesus was being mocked and tortured on the cross, what did he say? He didn't shout down and say, you missed the boat, you're going to get yours, you horrible sinners. You're going to hell. As people who had tortured him or mocking him and making fun of him, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's what we're called to. And it's hard work, and it's impossible without the love of Christ living in our lives. We need Him. We need His love, His presence, if we're going to do this, to be His people. But imagine what the world would be. Imagine what our community would be if we were able to love and forgive like this. So I want to end with two questions, and I want you to search your hearts as I ask before we close in prayer. What do you need God to forgive? His forgiveness is already available to you, but what sin or past action are you holding back in your heart? And you're thinking, oh, I can't bring that before God. It's too bad. Just keep it buried. God can't forgive that, so I'm just not even going to ask Him. I want to invite you this morning as we pray to bring it before the Lord. The forgiveness for that sin has been paid in full on the cross. He knows anyway, so you may as well confess it. And receive the healing and forgiveness that he can bring. Second, to whom do you need to extend forgiveness? Is there a family member that you just don't talk to anymore that you need to reconcile with? Is there somebody who has legitimately done you wrong and you just haven't? been in contact doesn't mean they'll be best friends again but for whom you can say i set you free i forgive you let's come before the lord and search our hearts and let's allow the forgiveness of christ to set us free and then offer that same forgiveness and freedom to the people in our lives let's pray Lord, your mercy and your grace and your love are immeasurable. They are astounding. They are unearned, just completely given out of grace because of your love for us. Lord God, right now we lift up to you those parts of ourselves that we are not proud of. Those sins that we have of either commission or omission, things we have done or left undone that drag us down, that eat at us in the quiet moments when we're able to be honest with ourselves. We lift them up to you and we just pray, Lord, for your forgiveness. Heal us. Help us to know your love and forgiveness even in those places that we try so hard to hide. And as we are more fully healed and forgiven, I pray, Lord, Lord, that you will give us the grace and love that we need to extend this forgiveness to the people in our lives who need it. Help us to extend forgiveness to people who don't deserve it simply because we have received forgiveness that we don't deserve. As we do so, help us to do it with your joy and your love and bring transformation and unity to this world that so desperately needs it. And we pray all this in your holy name. Amen.